Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Today is uh, today's June the 6th. Somebody left me a note here, I think. It says, today is D-Day. It's the remembrance of D-Day, isn't it? Yes. It's today, June the 6th. Uh, D-Day 1944, also 1968, what happened this day? Robert Kennedy was assassinated after he had just won the California primary. Yeah, on D-Day. That was a sad day. This morning when I was driving in, uh, I passed a... Uh, there, it was like a... On Kellogg, headed west... On the Kellogg Freeway, headed west, there was going a, uh, it was like a do- at least a dozen police cars and motorcycles in a procession all the way across, three lanes across, and and they had lights on, and they would be a couple of rows of them, and then there was, they stretched about a half a mile, or six blocks or something, and then it was, there was in the middle of this, what do you call that, a, you know, a, a convoy, processional, in the middle of that was this truck hauling a flatbed trailer, and the only thing on that flatbed trailer is what looked like uh, a, a big, uh, looked like a cooler, like a chest cooler thing strapped to it. And I thought, I have no idea what that was all about. It's D-Day, it's June 6th, I don't know whether some, where they were headed, I don't know. It just, has anybody heard what was going on? It just slays me what it was. It was a beautiful, like, Parade. I mean, it was a beautiful procession, and the lights were going—not the sirens, just lights—and they were oppressed, so nobody could cut in. You know, they—they they had the front and the back of this thing blocked off across all three lanes of traffic. You know, and they were just headed west, and everybody was slowing down on the other side. I was headed east. You know, we we're all slowing down watching it, and uh, I have no idea what they were doing. I was just curious. Uh, didn't know if there was some special thing they were headed to, or what was in that. Chest. I can't imagine what was in that. Chest. It didn't look like a coffin. It didn't look like any kind of funeral type thing. But yet it was obviously something special. Maybe it was bombs. We'll, they needed we'll probably. <laughs> Who knows? What's that? We'll probably hear. <laughs> well, hopefully, we'll maybe it'll be on the news. I don't know. Well, let's uh, let's pray before we study. Uh, if you have your prayer cards, let's just pray our prayer before the study of Scripture. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. John chapter 17, part 3. The high priestly prayer of Jesus. We are at part 3. I didn't change that on the board, did I? So these are verses uh, 11 through 13. Uh, So those are some leftover notes from before. I kept a few of them on the board for us. Uh, Added a couple of new new words. Uh, We are in the part of the prayer where Jesus is praying for unity for his disciples. And that unity is in the face, really, of great opposition. So this is, even though this is only just three verses today, I think there's enough there for us to look at that it'll take us a while to talk about it. So let's pick up the story in verse 11, and let's read through 13. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, which thou hast given me 
that they may be one, even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in thy name, which thou hast given me. I have guarded them, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Okay, let's stop there. Um, first thought, last week we talked about the Greek word for onoma, which is for name. And we, we tried to get into a study of what did it mean that Jesus uh, said that I have, uh, I have kept them in thy name. And I, I think last week, if we look back to the scripture, it, uh, it shared that idea. He's, verse 6, it said, I have manifested thy name to them, to his disciples, in other words. Does anyone recall what is special about the interpretation of that Greek word for name that we talked about? Anybody recall that at all? I know a few of you weren't here, but some of you were. Um, Recall that? Okay, we're going to talk about it more today. It's okay if you don't. We're going to talk about it more today because Jesus uses it over and over. This is an extremely important concept, the name. It came up last night, but I didn't have time to finish teaching on it. Last night, I started a new class. Please come if you can. I'm going to be doing it throughout the summer. It's called my 401 level class, which is, uh, which is uh, on, it's titled The Spirit-Filled Life. We're looking at the book of Acts and we're looking at what the spirit-filled life really is and what it, what it looked like as the early Christians lived it. What does it mean to us? How do we live it? That's what we're going to be looking at. So last night was the introductory lesson. Uh, you can hear the podcast. I recorded it just like these. It's on there. I, upped it, I put it up this morning. So 401 class, go check it out, and then come next week at 6.30 right here in this room. Left off last night with that thought about the name, because it comes up in the book of Acts quite a bit. And Jesus uses it quite a bit here. We know from our study last week that the Greek word onoma, for name, has this meaning behind it that it, it has power, it has it has content. It has. It's not just simply a label. Okay, it is a holy name. Okay, names in the ancient world always meant something. Okay, and it's interesting how that's played out through history. Uh, even the, uh, I think it's the Native American world where their names often come, you know, like Running Bear or, you know, Black Bear or whatever. There's something special about a significant place or site or something that they saw, and so they choose names that way. I, I'm not an expert at that, but I, I've heard and read about that. But in, even for a while in the English world, uh, as the English world developed a, a, its own language, the idea of a name was carried over uh, into what you did. If, you were a, uh, uh, if your father's name was Robert and you were a son, you were a son of Robert, Robert's son, and that kind of became a surname. I, I just use that one because that's an easy one to remember. But there are many, uh, many examples like that. Uh, I've never quite, obviously every single name doesn't seem to carry that connotation. Uh, But behind, like for instance, my name is Riley. You know, what does Riley mean? Yeah, and it's Irish, I know that, you know. And I haven't figured out too much significance behind it other than that there's a big tavern named Riley's Tavern in Dublin, Ireland. That's some great-great-grandfather back there somewhere had a tavern. He wasn't a Nazarene, obviously. I think that was before the Nazarenes. <laughs> but uh, the idea behind the name, Jesus is, is talking about it more here this morning. He says he begins by saying, I'm no longer in the world, but they're, they're in the world. What, what do you think that means, that Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world? Well, he's still talking to him. He's right there with them. He's still in the world. He hasn't gone back into heaven yet. So how could he say, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world? What do you suppose he meant by that? Any thoughts? Makes me think of, we say we're no longer in the world. Aha, very good. Yeah, there's a sense in which we as Christians are to be no longer in the world. But they haven't received the Holy Spirit. Yeah, they're, they're, they're getting close. <laughs> but there is a point at which, and he's going to say it in this prayer, you know, when we get to the last part of the prayer. 
chapter, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he's going to talk about keeping them in the world, but not of the world. And Jesus is showing them that he is going away. He's been saying that for for days and weeks, actually. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Remember, this is in the... He's talking about them in the the, uh, second person. He's talking about they and them because he's praying to the Father. This is all in the context of a prayer. And he's praying as if to teach them. And his prayer is very didactic. That's why John remembered this whole prayer and John wrote it down because it was very impactful on John and it was part of the teaching of his John. He's teaching us so much about the Trinity and about the life of Christ and about our life after Christ uh, is, is glorified and what the church's life is to be like. So when he says they are in the world, he's speaking of the fact that uh, there's going to be a difference He's no longer here with them physically. There's going to be a difference. And they're still here. The disciples still have to deal with this physical world. And and he makes the point, I'm coming to thee. Jesus is headed back. So given the thought that they're going to be left in the world, and he's not going to be in the world, his prayer is, Holy Father, keep them in thy That's a prayer request Jesus is making. Holy Father, keep them in thy name. Think about that and what that means. There's a lot of scriptures that we could pull up at this point. Let's spend a little bit of time in the book of Psalms with you. Let's just look at it. I've got one open here. Um, See if I can find here. Psalm, I think it's 45. No, it's 40. Which one is it? 41. It's one of these 40s. Okay, let's do it back. I know it's Psalm 20 has one. There's several different points. I want to, Let's look at Psalm 20. The opening line of Psalm 20. There's one in the 40s too, and I can't remember which one it is right now. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. So again, this is a the psalmist in Psalm 20, verse 1, is saying, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. He doesn't say, May God set you securely on high. The psalmist says, May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. It's just one example, and it's used over and over throughout the book of Psalms. In the prayers of the Psalms, there's this idea that the name of God. Uh, I think last week I gave you a reference in the book of Isaiah that talked about the name. What is so special? What is this? What is the writer trying, both the writer of the Psalms, the Isaiah, the writer John here in our gospel, what is he trying to say to us about the name of God? What is the name of God? We talked about it last week. What is the name of God that is so important to us as Christians now that the New Testament has been revealed, Christ has revealed it? The name of God is Father. Father. The personal name of God is Yahweh. Okay. The Old Testament revealed name of God personally, the I Am in the Hebrew, the I Am uh, in, the, in the Greek, the I am. When Moses asked for the, God's name, God just said, I am who I am. I am that I am, I'm sorry. I am that I am. And Jesus would use that. That became, that was in Hebrew, Yahweh. And the Hebrews, that was so holy, the, the Jews would not speak it. They wouldn't even write it. So they developed that word, Adonai, Master, Lord, Every time they wanted, if they're reading scripture or praying scripture, talking anything, if it came to the word Yahweh, they wouldn't say it and they wouldn't write it. They would speak the word Adonai. That's why you hear the word Adonai so often for God. But Jesus came to give us a different word, and the word he gave us is Father. Jesus reveals God God as our Father. My Father. Here he calls him Holy Father. Keep them in thy name. Keep them in what name? Keep them in your name as Father. Because there is nothing more powerful. There is no lesson that the disciples need to learn 
more important than that God is their father. Is that why we are kind of against them calling anyone else father? For instance, the Catholic Church, they call them all fathers. Actually, no, and I will explain that. That's a great question. Uh, because honestly, we shouldn't be against that. Um, that That's just kind of a, pro, I want to call it a Protestant ignorance, okay? Uh, Jesus calls Abraham father, Father Abraham. Uh, Paul calls Paul calls uh, himself father to the church in uh, several different places. I, I I'm your spiritual father. When when a priest in the world, maybe in the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church or Orthodox Church or any church, is called father, it's recognizing his role as a father. No, so Jesus. Everybody, the Protestant ignorance is that we quote that scripture where Jesus says, uh, "Call no man father." <laughs> well. That's silly. Jesus even calls Abraham father. What he was trying to do is call was to get the point across in that scripture that we're not to call anyone by God's fatherly name. Okay, no, there is but one father. There is but one God, in other words. And he alone has his glory in his place. But it's okay for us. I mean, I grew up calling my dad father for a while. It was kind of a formal thing. There's still people that do it. Jesus would never tell us that's wrong. So if a pastor or a priest or a minister functions in the role of a spiritual father, it's okay, call him father. There's people that call me father all the time, Father Riley. Some of them do it joking, some of them do it seriously. (laughs) But uh, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Pastor, we're used to calling our ministers pastor. But again, pastor, whether it's father, pastor, reverend, whatever, uh, brother, minister, those refer to different roles that the ordained clergy are called to fill. A pastor is one who shepherds. Um, a father is one who cares and leads and grows and teaches. Like, for instance, what I'm doing here this morning is more of a fatherly role. I'm trying to teach. I'm trying to teach the children here. Okay. I'm not calling you children. We're all God's children. But my point is, you know how John would call my little children. When he was writing in his epistles, he would say, my little children. Why did he mean by that? There, that was in, in the ancient world. The student was the, the teacher was the parent. The student was the child. Okay, That was that ancient world relationship. So my little children, I'm acting like a spiritual father to you. I'm teaching you the way of God, the way of the scripture, the way of faith. That's a fatherly role. It's not a pastorly role. If I come visit you in your hospital and pray with you because you're hurting, that's a pastorly role. I'm going to bind up the the uh, the brokenhearted like a shepherd would. Okay, I'm going to watch out for you and make sure that nobody hurts you or leads you astray. That's a pastoring role. Now, if I'm preaching in a service, well, that's a prophet's role. The New Testament speaks of prophecy is the telling forth of God's truth. Not predicting. Sometimes we think prophecy is just predicting something that's about to happen. That's not what the biblical use of the word prophecy is. The biblical use of the word prophecy was that those prophets, they spoke what God had told them to speak. And they better speak what's true. So same with me. If I'm going to preach a sermon, I better speak what God's told me to speak, and I better speak what's true, because I'm going to be held accountable for it. So the idea here, the Holy Father, Jesus Always, he never called God the Father. He never called him anything but Father. In every record we have of the New Testament, Jesus only and ever used that name, Father. I think that speaks loudly. And that's what he's doing here. Keep them in thy name, thy name that is Father. You are their Father, just like you're my Father. And you need to keep them. And in that relationship, That is where safety is. That is where their faith will be lived out. That is where they will conquer the enemy. This is where they'll be, and he says in the end of this scripture, this is where they'll be united. So let's kind of work our way towards that just a little bit. When he says, the name that you gave me, Father, keep them in thy name, which is the name you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. This is a very important passage. 
Jesus is saying that the same name of God, the Father, is the same name that Jesus has been given, the name you gave me. Now, we don't call Jesus Father. They didn't call Jesus Father. But somehow the name is greater than the word. Jesus is showing, again, a Trinitarian oneness. That they may be one even as we are one. How is it that God and Jesus, I mean, God the Father, let me just start using the names. How is it that God the Father and Jesus the Son are one? They're separate persons. One's a father, one's a son, as we know them in the Godhead. But yet, as Jesus has said many times, they are one. Okay, the, the mystery is this. This is the mystery. The mystery is taught appropriately this way. That they are one in essence, three in persons. Okay, That they are one in essence, that there is one Godhead. The essence is God. But, they're, but they have three separate persons, the Holy Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they fulfill different roles within that Godhead. But yet they are not three separate gods. Because from the beginning of Scripture, God is one. From the very beginning, in the in the book of Genesis, God is God is Trinitarian. He is there as in plural. You know, it, it, take the very opening of the book of Genesis. The very opening. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so there we see that God, that big title for God, which in Hebrew is Elohim, which means a plural godness. Uh, and then the very next line we hear, and the Spirit hovered over. The waters, isn't that what it says? The spirit. So now we have God, the Father, and the Spirit in the same version of creation. There has always been God, Father, and Son in the Spirit in the Bible. And then by the time we get to the second and third chapter, we hear God saying, uh, let us make man in our image. There is this plurality to the Godhead. Then by the time we get to the people of God, when there's a relationship, you know, what time we get to the Mosaic Law and we're in the book of Deuteronomy and we have this relationship of God with uh, with his children, what is the one of the greatest prayers that the Jewish people would pray? We find in Deuteronomy and it is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So throughout the Old Testament, throughout the faith of the Israelites, they never understood the Trinity. They didn't understand it. They understood there was a God and God is one. They understood there was a Holy Spirit. They didn't ever try to show that that Holy Spirit was really somehow a separate person. They didn't understand that. In fact, it couldn't be understood until Jesus came. Jesus came in the fullness of human flesh to manifest God. As the writer of Hebrews says, he is the fullness of God, the radiance, the exact representation. Such a good verse. I didn't read it last week. Let me read it real quick. Um, I, I think it's really important. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and meaning, meaning Jesus. And he is the radiance. In other words, and Jesus is the radiance of his, meaning God the Father's, glory and the exact representation of God the Father or his nature. The writer of Hebrews is being very clear. Jesus is, so God the Father was always this God with no name. He was the God with no body. He was the God with no, you know, the unknown God, if you will, in, in the Old Testament that, that his name was so holy they couldn't pronounce. Now we know what he looks like. Now we know what his name is because Jesus is God in human flesh. And there's a there is behold behold there's a great mystery here Father Son and Holy Spirit. And it is the power of this mystery, the power of this name, the same name. Jesus says right here it's the same name you gave to me, the name of what? What is the one name that they all three share? It's not Jesus, that's the son's name. It's not Father, that's the first person of the Godhead's name. It's not Holy Spirit, that's the third person's name. What is the one name they all share? 
It's a three-letter word. God. God. That's right. seems kind of obvious. It's God. Jesus is saying, I'm God. You've shared, you, we, we carry the same essence. We carry the same name. And, and now he says, I want, so I want them that they, that they, what is the prayer request? That they may be one, even as we are one. Let's, let's break that apart a little bit. How is it that they, that they, he meant his disciples, those 11 that he's praying for right there. But he also means us today, all who would ever be his disciples. How is it that they, the disciples of Jesus, how is it that they could be one even as Jesus and the Father are one? Do we become gods when we believe in Jesus? Not quite, not really. But do we become, I want to invite you into a secret here, okay? It's a well-kept secret in Christianity, sadly. Sadly, it's a well-kept secret. We are invited to become like God. Okay? We are invited to become sharers in his divinity. Never in his fullness. Jesus Christ is in, in God's fullness. Okay? But we're invited into that mystery. That's what Peter means when he says uh, that we may become partakers of the divine nature. That's in one of the epistles to Peter. I always forget which one. It's first Peter, maybe. That we may become partakers of the divine nature. You, you see, I bet you most of you, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. Don't, don't, let me not assume what you think. Uh, that's not right of me to assume what you think. I know myself for many, many, many years of my believing faith never understood that I was invited into the mystery of becoming a partaker of God's divine nature. There is something, can I use the word deified within me? God is in the process of making me like himself. I will never be what he is by essence, okay? But I will become by grace what he is. That's the process we're in. That's the process of the, the word the ancient church used was theosis. Theosis. Greek, that's the, the is part is same, sameness and theos meaning God. Theosis, same as God, becoming the same as God, becoming like God. It's a process. The, the Latin word was deification. De, well, that's actually an American version, the English version of uh, But deus is the Latin form of God. So deification meaning becoming like God. And we, we're in that process, whether we realize. In, in our vernacular, we call it, in our theology, we call it being entirely sanctified. Where we have become completely filled in our heart with the very spirit of the living God so that we become like him and in ever increasing measure. Okay? We are never completely filled up with the grace of God because God is infinite and we are finite. But we are becoming if we're on the right path, if we're believing, if we're trying, if we're living in relationship with Jesus Christ, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if we're doing that, we are actually becoming, by grace, what he is by nature. So, St. Augustine, I believe, is the one who said it this way, and famously said it this way. God became like us. I'm paraphrasing St. Augustine, okay. God became like us, that means human, okay, so that we could become like him, which is divine. You ever stop and think that there's divinity within you? Didn't God say that we were made in his image? There's the divinity. It's a transformation process. It is a transforming process, yes it is. But it began with the spark of God's divinity. It's what we call humanity. Human beings, all human beings, 
have within them the spark of God's image. They're created in, we, we are created in his image, in his likeness. Okay, so not in his fullness. We're not created in his fullness, just in his image. And that means even the most horrible sinner, even, we're going to talk about one here today, Judas. I mean, what could be more horrible than to betray Jesus Christ? Your place in history is the one who betrayed Jesus Christ. Even Judas had was made in the image of God and likeness of God. So Jesus goes on to say, we're, we're seeing how God, Jesus is tying them in so that they may be one even as we are one. What he is saying there, let me just recapsulize, he's saying that we've been invited into the divine nature. So let us learn how to participate in becoming more and more and more like God. That's our invitation. Now, while in verse 12 he says, while I was with them, now he means for the three years that he's been with them in his human form, in this three-year ministry, while I was with them, he says, I kept them in your name. Okay, they were connected to God and the power of God through the name of God. That's why, again, Jesus says, I kept them through your name. That, that name represents the manifestation of God's power. Okay, the holy name. That's why the psalmist says, may the name of the God of Jacob bless you. May the name of God. I mean, it's just, it's a powerful thought. Okay. Um, and, and he's saying, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave to me, and I have guarded them, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Let's think about that word perdition. What does that word perdition mean? You don't use that word every day. What do you think the word perdition means? I wrote two Greek words on the board. <laughs> you know it's probably one of them, right? My translation says the one doomed to destruction. Doomed to destruction. Yeah, that's a pretty bad thought, isn't it? Doomed to dis- destruction. Here's the word, apolia. Apolia in Greek means one who is destroyed. It means something that has been utterly, we can even use the words utter destruction. The idea here is the completeness of its destruction. So Judas Iscariot, who we know Jesus is talking about, the only one he lost. And in what sense did he really lose Judas? He didn't lose Judas. I mean, it's kind of, if we're not careful, we think that sounds careless. Jesus didn't lose him. Okay. He said, the only one of them is lost, but the son of perdition. Judas is lost but he is lost by his own choice, not by any carelessness of Jesus. Okay. Now, there's some words here that I want to read to you that were written by, uh, let's see, I think this is St. John Chrysostom, one of the early bishops. We've read him a lot in here. Uh, Archbishop of Constantinople, 4th century, or 5th century, early 5th century. Now, this is his words talking about this idea of lostness. In another place, in the meaning of the gospel, in another place, Jesus says, quote, of all that you gave me, I will surely lose nothing, end quote. And that actually is in John chapter 36. Yet not only was Judas lost, Judas Iscariot, okay, but also many after Judas were lost. I mean, what is St. John is saying, there are many people that have been lost. So, uh, how then can he, meaning Jesus, how can he say, quote, I will not lose any, end quote. And what he means, so John Chrysostom goes on to say what, he, what Jesus means is, quote, and he's paraphrasing, you know, what Jesus would have meant. At least for my part, I will not lose them. So that in another place, declaring the matter more clearly, he said, Quote, I will not reject anyone who comes to me. That's in John chapter 6 also. Jesus said, I will not reject any who comes to me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that not through any fault on his part, they will not be lost at 
Jesus' instigation or because he abandoned them. But if they start going, I love this line, but if they start going away on their own, I will not force them back. He's paraphrasing what Jesus would have said there. But if they start going away on their own, I will not force them back. St. John Chrysostom, early 5th century, preaching about free will. Preaching about free will, right there it is. In what sense was Judas lost? He was lost by his own free will. He was lost by absolutely, and, and, and Jesus would not. In fact, I go short, Jesus could not force him to come back. Why do I say that Jesus could not? Because God will not, cannot violate our free will. And I know that upsets a lot of Christians that have a more Calvinist bent, that just believe in this sovereign choice of God before all the foundation of the world, and that Judas was sovereignly chosen to be the one who was doomed to destruction. But that's not true. He was elected to, to be lost only because all people that end up lost are elected to be lost. And that is because of God's foreknowledge or God's knowledge. Remember always when you're reading scripture, when it talks about who's lost and who isn't lost, remember this, and we've talked about this before, but I always am willing to repeat it. How does God know who will be saved and who won't be saved? He knows it because he is God. And before the world was ever created, God looked out over all in his knowledge. We call it, Scripture calls it foreknowledge, like in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to become like the image of his son, to be justified, to be saved, in other words. Those whom God foreknew. Well, to us, it sounds like he knew before, but to God, it's just knowledge. God is the eternal being. He exists outside of time and space, and to him, it's just knowledge. Those whom God knew. So what we're really saying is before the world was ever created, God knew everything he would ever create. He knew everything everybody would ever do in his creation. He knew every bad thing that would ever happen, every good thing that would ever happen. He could see it all before he created it because he's God, and he chose to create it anyway. Why? Because he loves. Because God's eternal being is love. It was love that created the world. It was humanity's free will that chose to reject that love that brought sin and death into the world. God's not the author of sin. God's not the author of pain. God's not the author of anything bad. God is love. As John tells us over and over in, in Scripture, God is love. God is light. Do you get that? Am, am I just beating a dead horse here? Have I said that too many times? Do you all get it? And say, okay, Brad, I'll move on. <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying here? Judas was lost by his own free will. There's no bringing him back. There was no bringing him back because God will not, cannot force us to change our will when our will is set against him. So, in other words, he says the only one that was lost was the son of perdition. Um... That's my page. So he goes on to say, and that was that scripture might be fulfilled. Do you realize the Old Testament talks about a betrayer of Christ? Turn with me to Psalm 109. Let's look at Psalm 109 and look at some of its words here. Uh, it's a fascinating psalm. This is a messianic psalm in that the words, we, we believe it's written by David, but he's speaking prophetically as the person of Christ. David is the Christ figure of the, a Christ figure in the Old Testament, if you will, uh, a type of the Christ to the king. Uh, oh God, and so that we hear these words of the, the, like a prayer from this, from David in this case, but, but also in the spirit of the Christ. Oh God of my praise, do not be silent. For they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred. And they have fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers. But I am in prayer. 
Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. What, do you hear Jesus in that? Can you hear Jesus? Maybe in, his, maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe somewhere in the agony of his being rejected by the world. All he's done is show love to the world. All he's ever done is come and heal people and speak good news, and he gets rejected. So that's, that's what you're hearing prophetically here in these words, the pain of his rejection. And then verse 6 says, in this prayer of this, this prophetic prayer, verse 6 says, Appoint a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer become sin. And let his days be few, and let another take his office. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking. This is prophetically talking about Judas, the great betrayer. In fact, how do we really know that it's talking about Judas? Because Peter, the great apostle Peter, (coughs) actually quotes this scripture in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, if you remember, when they're all gathered in the upper room, Peter stands up and he's moved. We know he's moved because this knowledge would have been beyond the fishermen. He couldn't have just pulled up Psalm 109 like that. I mean, they didn't even have printed Bibles. I mean, I don't think he could have pulled it up. It was the Holy Spirit working within him. That he's quite, He says, brothers, we need to elect somebody to Judas's office. Because scripture says, and let, and let his office another take, place his, and let another take his place in his office. And so they elected another apostle, if you recall. So Peter quotes this scripture in Acts chapter 1. So this is a very prophetic scripture, and it talks about this, this life. Let his, and it says there, let his days be few. Let him be cut off. Um, it goes on. You can read about it. It's, it's a lot longer psalm, and it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty harsh uh, against both the betrayer of Christ, and of course the father of all betrayers of Christ, Satan. We see both of them in that scripture there. So the idea that that um, Judas is lost is solely by his free will. The idea that he is lost is the fulfillment of scripture because scripture must be fulfilled. Must always be fulfilled. And has been fulfilled. And we see that fulfillment of that prophecy right there in the life of Judas Iscariot. But Jesus, verse 13, Jesus isn't through with this part of the prayer because he wants to say, uh, but now, Father, I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world. He is still in the world, even though in the opening he said, I'm no longer of the world. He's saying, hey, I'm still here. I'm speaking these things in time and space so people can hear them. Because here's what I want them to hear. I'm speaking these things in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Boy, just underline that in your Bible, will you? Next time you're feeling not full of joy, next time you're wondering where all the joy is in this world and where all the joy is in this life, just remember the source of all joy is Jesus. Jesus Christ, God, second person of the Holy Trinity. That, he is the source of all joy. Uh, my mind wants to go to the song, you know. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. You're the heart of my contentment, the hope for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. Anybody ever heard that song before? You never heard it? Oh, wow. I wish you could hear it well. I can't sing it very well. You've never heard that song. Has anyone heard that besides my wife? Terry's heard it. A couple of you. Oh, man. That's, I don't, you know what? I was in a Baptist church not long ago when I heard it. It was a, 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 a black Baptist church. Second Baptist Church of Winfield, my dear friend, the pastor's there, Brock Brown, and it was at his, uh, one of his an anniversary service I was asked to speak at. It's been two years ago now. Um, and, and that was a special song they played before I preached. The, 
gentleman played the piano and sang it. And I, I defy you to go listen to that song. Go Google it, listen to it. You can't listen to that song without feeling this immense joy. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. I catch myself singing that sometimes, just driving down the road, you know. You know, that you were little kids, you were taught to sing that song, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my... Right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, you've all heard that one. <laughs> well, this is a grown-up version, okay? <laughs> you, you, you just listen to it. Live in it. Let it fill your thoughts and your heart. Because all the source of joy is Jesus. Okay? And Jesus, when we look at his earthly life, was filled with great pain. But even though it was filled, his earthly life filled with great pain, he never lost his joy. And he's sitting here hours before the cross, just hours before the most unbelievable physical agony any human being ever went through or will ever go through. Just hours before that. And he's praying about his joy. Because he knows he wants them, meaning those who follow him, to have his joy fulfilled in themselves. Now we need to look at that word fulfilled. Okay, This isn't just a piece of his joy. This isn't just a part of his joy. This is all of his joy. That word fulfilled, we've seen this word before. In the Greek it's pleru. Okay, pleru. And, and we've seen it before. It's in other gospels. It's in other scriptures. But it literally has the meaning of... Uh, complete. So, filled up and overflow. It is. There's no more that can be packed in. It's complete fullness. So Jesus doesn't. By using that word, Jesus was telling them, and what they heard was, that "You can have all of my joy. I want all of my joy to be." In. And that's his prayer to the Father, Father, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So. Let's think about, in our closing minutes here this morning, let's think about the source of joy is Jesus. What is the source of that joy between humanity and Jesus, between humans and God, between the church and God? What is the source of that joy? He's talked about it right here. But, and, and the source of that joy is Jesus' unity with the Father. He said earlier, he said that they may be one as we are one. Okay. Let us not forget that the main prayer request right here is not that we just be happy. It's not that we just be joyful. It's not that we just understand God's name is all powerful. It's not. It's that we are one as he and the Father are one. That's the main prayer request of this prayer right here. Unity. Unity. It's an elusive term in our world today. It's a very elusive term. There isn't a lot of unity in families. There isn't a lot of unity in relationships. There isn't a lot of unity in governments. There isn't a lot of unity. Pretty hard to look around our world and find much unity, actually. Um, but yet, that is the prayer request. That they may be one. That they may be unified as you and I are one and unified. How is it that God the Son, Jesus, and God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit are unified? What is it that unifies them? It is their will. God has one will. Jesus has one will. The Father has one will. The Spirit has one will. And their will always operates. Earlier in the gospel, we've read how wherever the Father is at work, Jesus is at work. And wherever the Holy Spirit is at work, Jesus is at work. And the Father's at work. Wherever the, they never go anywhere separately. That's part of the Trinity. Okay, They never go anywhere separately. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. And their will is one. And that is our model. That is, our, that is his prayer request. So that you and I, even though we are separate beings, okay, can there be a form of trinity between us and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? 
Can we enter into that divine nature in some way, shape, or form? Yes, the answer is yes. And what we miss is, is this idea that, well, it's just sad. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But later on, um, let's see if I'm just trying to decide, do I want to go forward with this or I want to read that part or not? Um, because it relates to what we're saying here. Um, in verse 20, he just says it plainly. I do not pray for these only, but for all who will believe through their word that they may all be one. Even as the Father art in even as thou, Father, are in me, and I in thee, and they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That's verse twenty and twenty one. The reason I wanted to jump ahead and say that, it'll be worth mentioning <laughs> believe me, it'll be worth going over again in a couple of weeks. Is because that's what's missing in our world. That's what's missing in our world. Do you realize, do we realize that when we argue against the Catholics or the Baptists or the Methodists, we are destroying the unity of God in his church? It's the saddest thing of human events. You know, I, it didn't take me long to figure out in my, in my uh, theological studies that uh, I quit, I, I never celebrated Reformation Day because I wasn't Lutheran, you know. <laughs> and then pretty soon in ministry I realized that Reformation Day was a big celebration on the Protestant side of things. You know what Reformation Day is? Does everybody know what Reformation Day is? October 31st is not just Halloween, it's Reformation Day. <laughs> okay, That's the day that Martin Luther went to the church door in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 Thesis to the door. Okay? Of the 95 things he had a problem with the Catholic Church over the use of indulgences and things. Uh, and the, the, the celebrated beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Well, I've got news for you. I don't celebrate the Protestant Reformation. Did it need to happen? Yeah. Did it happen along the lines that it really should have? No. Because all unity was fractured. In the Western <coughs> Christian movement. All unity was fractured. And boy, once it was fractured. Now, you can argue with me and say, well, it had to be fractured. Because no, it didn't. That's, yeah, it needed to be reformed. But could there have been another way to reform had there been another way? Well, they say the Pope wouldn't listen. You're right. I agree the Pope wouldn't listen. And in fact, he was a, quite an evil Pope, the one that was in charge in that particular time period. Pope Leo, I think, was an evil Pope of that time period. <coughs> But the reality is, we still shouldn't celebrate the fact that Christendom was divided. Okay? We should be praying for Christendom to be united. And I, and I love that. I just got to tell you, I love that, that I see that happening. I've been in full-time Christian ministry for 20 years. And for over those almost 20 years, I have seen denominationalism wane and spirit-filled kingdom love grow. There was a time, believe it or not, I'm meddling now, okay, and I'm sorry about that, but there was a time when we wouldn't in this church, when I say we, I mean the powers that be, okay, whether that was pastoral and board leader and all that together, would not have even had a singing group come in here or a so-and-so speaker come in here or whatever if they weren't Nazarene. And some of you maybe can remember that. I can even remember one day. I won't name any names, but there was a celebrated group who I think does a great cause in this world. What we, we had them in to speak and they gave a concert. And a particular person came up to me afterward and said they shouldn't have been in here. They're not Nazarene. Oh, that's, it's like, I was young in those days in the ministry, but I knew it felt wrong even then. Now I know why. Because we're not to celebrate our differences. See, if we can find unity with other fellow Christians, then we've really found the kingdom of God on earth. Okay, now, We may not agree. I mean, we can't force ourselves to agree on things we, we, we don't agree with. Okay, 
we're, ne- we're not going to be one with the Roman Catholic Church as long as the Roman Catholic Pope says he has absolute juridical authority over the whole world, over all the Christian church. As long as that's going to be their position, we're not going to be one. It's just not going to happen. Not one in body. But we can still be one in spirit. I can still love the Pope. I can still pray for the Pope. I can still I can still believe the Pope is a good man. When he is a good man, he is a good man. Okay? Does that make sense to you? That one is, so so let us put aside all of the bickering and the name calling and the slandering of other Christians. Whether they're Pentecostals and think you have to be filled with the Spirit by speaking in tongues, God bless them if they think that, you know. I don't think that. But I'm not going to let it divide my unity with them. Man, if they think you have to bow to the Pope to be in charge of everything, God bless them. I'm not going to do that, but I'm not going to divide my unity with them. And when we can reach that day, wow, man, maybe Jesus will return, you know. Because his prayer is, is his prayer is that they be one. I, I sometimes wonder if that's what he's waiting on. I don't know what he's waiting on. But I wonder. And I'm starting to see it because there is an ecumenical movement in our world today that is beautiful. It is beautiful. Don't miss it. Don't miss it when you see the ecumenical love and movement between various different church bodies. Lowering of denominationalism. And one of the greatest... I've got one more minute. One of the greatest signs of that being rejected is the fact that the younger generation has led the way. The younger generation, is they want nothing to do with denominationalism. They've seen the denominationalism of their fathers and grandfathers and forefathers that all it did was build walls. And they, they're rejecting that. That's why it's very difficult to get a lot of young people into churches because churches are so bound up in their own cause and denomination. Uh, and they're, they're rejecting it big time. The gospel says, Paul specifically in the book of Ephesians says, he has broken down every wall. Jesus is our peace. He has broken down every wall. Well, sorry, I'm meddled with you a little bit. If you go out of here mad at me because I'm here. Don't, I'm not anti-Nazarene. I'm not anti. I love the Church of the Nazarene for what she truly believes, but I'm not so. Well, I won't use the word stupid because my mom said don't use that. I'm not so dumb as to think that our way is superior to everyone else's way. I love it because the Church of the Nazarene taught me to find life in the Holy Spirit that I didn't find in the Catholic Church. I was Catholic. Don't forget. And I'm not anti-Catholic because I left it, and I don't think they're wrong about everything. So, And I think there's great common ground between us. So let's remember that. Jesus' prayer, John 17, his prayer is for unity in the face of opposition. That's the third thing we're celebrating in the five parts of this prayer. Unity in the face of opposition. Well, the church has had 2,000 years of opposition. And until he returns, there will always be opposition because Satan is against us. And we don't have to give in to that opposition. We can be one with him. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this prayer. We thank you for the words of our Lord who we hear praying for us today. I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to hear this prayer in new ways. To hear about the calling to oneness and unity in new ways to hear about the the love that you have for us in new ways and to draw us into that joy, that your joy may be the center of all we do. So thank you, Father, for providing this beautiful prayer that we study these weeks. Be with us until we meet again. We lift this up in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, our Savior, who lives with you Father and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. 
Until then, may grace and peace be with you.